Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-host, the pet expert himself, Mr. Rick Pruce. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Lee. Hey, uh, Rick, I'm sorry that you're not in the studio with me, but I can't think of better circumstances for you to not be in the studio with me because for anyone who doesn't know, and I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know, but Rick Pruce has become a grandfather for the first time and has the most gorgeous granddaughter arguably in the world. Would you say that, Rick? Well, I'm not arguing. I agree. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it's been an adventure so far, and you've had a good time so far in taking care of her? I love it. I haven't had a lot of opportunities. She's only a week old, but but more times ahead. So. (laughs) Well, we're happy for you, and there's a lot of people who are ecstatic for it. Now, Rick, for this week's show, uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do recently is dig back through our archives and find some of the great guests that we've had in the past that we've lost touch with. And Rick, I think I found one that could be a record breaker, because I don't think we've talked to our guest today, Frank Indiviglio, in probably close to 10 years. But Frank, you were on with us several times and we love talking with you because you and Rick Pruce are just are as closely matched in terms of knowledge and experience and just we had great conversations and we're glad to have you back on the show. Thank you, Liam. Um, and Rick, I'm happy to be here. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I didn't realize it was that long, but um, wonderful to be back and um uh, everything you say is true. Yes, I feel like it's a it's a wonderful form. I've always I've always enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, it's what, our... what I go ahead. Rick. What I find interesting uh, for the listening audience, what I find very interesting, and why I love getting Frank on there, is like um, in the pet industry, in the pet business, in the pet field, uh, just in general, whether it's zoos or or pet shops, our paths are always a little wild. Our paths are always a little more interesting than the average person that you talk to, uh, you know, that's working at the grocery store. So um, I always love to hear stories from stories from Frank of his past and how he managed to get where he's at. And then also beyond that, he just has just an endless amount of knowledge and a lot of experience. And correct me if I'm wrong, Frank, you spend a lot of your waking hours uh, when you're not, you know, doing your own personal things, really focusing on helping people with, um, questions surrounding their pets and keeping. Yes, I do. Thank you. And thanks for the kind words. Um, yeah, I, I had been answering on online to uh, a website, that pet place where I posted tons of articles and would answer questions. Fortunately, that company was sold and I wasn't part of the deal. So they don't, um, <laughs> they don't, the, the articles are still there, but I can't update them or answer questions. But most folks who try to post a question just find me on Facebook and then, you know, contact me there uh, and I can update the articles to them that way. So it's, it's been, it, I still do it, yes, and it's a, it's a really enjoyable part of my day. Well, for, for, in, for any for, of our for list- listening people, oh, and, okay. and, and because we're, I'm on phone this week and the people don't know it, so Lee and I are going to just fight back and forth here to try to, <laughs> usually in the, in the studios we're looking at each other and we're saying, you talk, no, you talk. Uh, 
but for the listening audience, can you give uh, them uh, an idea of who you are and what your history is and and what you know about pets? Um, sure, sure. Uh, it, it has been, a, like you said earlier, a, a, a wild trajectory. <laughs> um, I got involved with animals. You know, I don't remember a time not being as a, as a child even. But I grew up in the Bronx, uh, so I was near the Bronx Zoo, Museum of Natural History. And that really led me to uh, open my world larger. Um, I worked in the pet trade. We actually had a, a major importer for uh, zoos throughout the world, wild animal importer, uh, Henry Treflick, downtown Manhattan. Uh, so I hung around his place as a kid and eventually, you know, learned some things there and worked. And then um, worked for other pet traders and animal dealers and then wound up uh, working for the Bronx Zoo for most of my career. I was a, I took a little short detour to become a lawyer, which I hated, but I had to do for some, you know, finan- I thought for financial reasons. Uh, went back to the zoo world after that and uh, worked in Staten Island Zoo, which is the reptile fans will know that that place is legendary. Uh, some zoos and aquariums now on freelance jobs, written a few books on animals, uh, especially uh, care of exotic pets and reptiles, exotic mammals, etc. Um, after school programs, uh, on and on. So yeah, it's been a, uh, some field work in Venezuela, Japan, the Caribbean. So it has been a, a, a great a great life and uh, still trying to keep it going. Now, when it comes to doing all of that, Frank, what do you think drove you toward it? I mean, growing up by the zoo, I can understand you get a lot of attention uh, that you pay to the animals, but uh, that's an interesting tour that you've taken. Uh, What is it about caring for animals that really... Uh, makes you enjoy it more than, say, being an attorney? Oh, uh, that was an easy one. <laughs> Actually, people joke that as an attorney, I, I just work with different kind of snakes than I do now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, being an attorney in Manhattan is a, is a very, very rough. You have to be born to want to do that. Um, I wasn't, I just thought I needed to do it for some early financial responsibilities, uh, family and such. Worked out I didn't have to. Uh, animals, I just, there was never a time when I wasn't fascinated. Even as a child and even living in the Bronx, there were, there were so many things that I could see, uh, surprises most people, the amount of wildlife that's there. Couldn't keep much of any large size, but the zoo filled in for that until I, you know, got got a little more space. But it's always been, it's just always been one of those, you could say, inborn passions. Um, I think all kids are interested. I'm helping raise my nephew, and of course, he was immediately drawn. But that real passion to stay with it is uh, is something you you really, it, it just was always there. Now, Rick, when it comes to doing all of this stuff, I know that your focus for most people understand has been uh, with saltwater. But Frank, can you explain to our listeners, you had some pretty unique writings when it comes to saltwater pets and specifically some very cool animals. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Thank you. Um, Well, you know, also in New York, where we had the New York Aquarium, which was a big influence, and then the Fulton Fish Market, believe it or not, it's a huge fish market, was um, downtown Manhattan, moved to the Bronx and indoors now. But this whole world would open at about 2 a.m. 
And the boats would come in and unload all sorts of uh, not only fish, but marine invertebrates. My grandfather would take me there and we would, uh, he would pick out, you know, he had some people who worked on the boats who knew him and he'd pick out, they would save little octopus for him and seahorses and such. And that was much less expensive than buying them in the store. Plus, it was just such a unique experience. It was all wrapped up by 6 a.m. It, it, was, it was an amazing scene there. Uh, that was my early influence, and he was very interested in seahorses. And we bred, actually, dwarf seahorses, which is not all that hard now, but at that time it was unusual uh, for even any kind of salt water. Even in New York City as a center of you know the pet trade at that time, uh, there was only one saltwater aquarium place that had some marine animals. Uh, so I got to write a book on seahorse care uh, as an adult and also a general aquarium book that covered a lot of invertebrates. And I, I've always lived near the water. Even it's New York City, Long Island is right there, and it's surrounded by uh, the Great South Bay, the Long Island Sound, the Atlantic. And I was easily able to seine and collect, trap all kinds of sea creatures. I still keep native saltwater fish. I mean, I have uh, right now in front of a tank that has native marine uh, hermit crabs and, and little shrimp and snails, periwinkles that are breeding. So it, was, uh, it wasn't all that hard. And it was just, another, I was lucky to have general wide interests. I never really uh, focused. I mean, I was head mammal keeper at the zoo while I was writing a seahorse book. So that kind of <laughs> is a little unusual and lucky for me. Absolutely. Now, Rick, when it comes to some of these creatures, how common are they in terms of what you see? Do most places uh, carry them, or is Proust unique in the fact that they carry a lot of the creatures that Frank just spoke about? It is is very blossomed and very developed, but it's kind of taken its own route. And I would say the route that it's taken, it takes some considerations that, you know, maybe both Frank and I got to witness over the years as as a potential issue is, you know, back early days, and I'm talking 70s and 80s, it wouldn't be unlike any store to get in product or animals that uh, are either difficult to keep or, uh, you know, just really don't have the ability to kind of deal with captivity or might be out of place and out of size or inappropriate. And then there's other animals. Seahorses would be probably the perfect example that the wild-caught seahorses, um, they probably would actually fall in that category as a general rule that for yes. for for decades it was probably a, a bad idea, right? And now uh, seahorses are a common part of a robust saltwater store presentation. Uh, it's something that every robust saltwater store would have, and all of them, by and large, or almost all of them, are going to be uh, captive raised. And I think that's the biggest thing is there's a sorting process in the industry that's been going on now for decades. And that sorting is, you know, what really does work. And the leading stores with a sense of like, let's be on the, the front edge of that, you know, ethical barrier of, you know, what makes the perfect pet as opposed to what shouldn't be in the industry, kind of lead the way. And then inevitably, everybody else has a tendency of following, uh, whether they want to or not, because the public becomes informed and we tend to have a collective consciousness, and we don't try to bring in wild-caught seahorses anymore. Or, um, and then there's always, you know, what really works, like clownfish, you know. So uh, clownfish are all captive-raised now, and then there's all kinds of varieties of, of clownfish, and then there's certain animals that maybe Frank kept and 
and uh, you know worked with back then that are now available, and there's plenty of them, I bet, that aren't even found on the trade. Is that fair enough, yes. Frank? All that is absolutely true. Um, with the seahorses in particular, uh, you know, only the dwarf one from Florida could be kept with any, any length of time because they could live on brine shrimp. Brine shrimp were the only live food really readily available to most people to feed seahorses, and it just doesn't work as a, as a complete diet. Uh, the captive ones, you know, now they often take frozen food that as long as it moves around with the filter, so you can give them a great variety. They just better, just what you said. And as uh, even more species, at least that I've seen, many in saltwater, uh, in reptiles and amphibians, that's just to me has been astonishing. Uh, but even when I wrote my, my seahorse book in the mid-90s, I guess, it was basically a book, the people who have read it, of course, have said to me, you know, well, I'm not going to get seahorses because it was still that there was very little breeding being done. It was really only for specialists who could collect their own marine foods for these animals. And now it's uh, just as Rick said, um, but with, with reptiles and amphibians, literally animals that you were hard to find a photo of when I was young are now standard trade items and crested geckos were believed to be extinct uh, in the 80s, even in the early 80s. Mm. Uh, bearded dragons were, were unheard of barely in zoos. Now they're the, <laughs> you know, they're the hamsters of the, of the reptile trade. Well, so, yep. Well, I was going well, to, I was going to say, uh, I want to talk about the reptiles, but let's continue, uh, with saltwater. But first we need to take our first break. Uh, so we're going to do that. Our guest today is Frank Indiviglio from New York city. And we're going to talk about seahorses right here on 1320 WILS. If Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen were two famous TV animals, Rick would be Pepe Le Pew and Lee would be Porky Pig. You're tuned to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show, and we're talking this morning with Frank Indiviglio, who is a zoologist, a herpetologist, a blog writer, a author, you name it, and he's done it. But Frank, one of the things you mentioned in the last segment was that you had written a book on seahorses. And that to me is absolutely fascinating because I just don't understand why so many people love horses, but I don't always see as many people who have seahorses. Can you help me understand what's going on there? Um, I think as Rick as Rick started to bring up earlier when before the break, um, they they were people who knew about marine fish keeping, I think shied away early on because they are so they were so hard to keep before captive bred individuals became common as is today. Um, but I did see at least here in the Northeast a, a lot of interest because they're so unusual. And a lot of people getting into marine fish, if they didn't go for the color they went for the oddities, and the seahorses were just right up there. The, the shape, the, the fact that they are fish but don't look like fish, uh, the male, you know, brooding the young, his pouches, it, it all drew them, but it won't turn pair bonds. Um, when I wrote my book, which was early in the 90s, uh, it was basically 
more natural history than care because all the care aspects were basically discouraging people to try them unless you were a real expert and had access to a place where you could collect the proper food. Now, as Rick was saying before we broke, it really is uh, its a common and, and can be fairly easily kept by people with a bit of experience because of the captive breeding and the availability of, you know, uh, they'll take non-living food, many of them. In the past, uh, wild-caught individuals would rarely take on live food, and you just couldn't give them the variety they need. And, Rick, what is your experience with that? Have you seen a lot of people venturing into them? Because, like, last week we spoke about axolotls, which seem to resemble uh, exactly what Frank just described, something that doesn't look normal and seems like an oddity but has gotten very popular. Are you seeing the same thing? You know, there's almost a parallel there, true. Um, they, they, it is kind of like with axolotls, you have to have, one, you're not putting them in with others necessarily, and they have the special kind of condition that they need and a special eating habit, which you have to really focus on and make sure they're eating properly. And in many cases, that's the seahorse as well. It's impossible to find anybody that's not interested in seahorses, but there's plenty of scenarios when, when you talk to a customer and all the things that they want when they see saltwater fish and saltwater creatures, you know, sometimes rule they rule out seahorses in spite of their particularity and, and, and curiosity and their, their, their coolness, their, their, their just craziness. Uh, when, when, when uh, Frank was talking about non-live food, like, you know, we give frozen mice shrimp. Well, if you watch a seahorse, they will, anything that moves like a small little shrimp, they just focus on that like nobody's business. And they just very, very, very slowly, almost sloth-like, to slowly work their way to the to the animal, and then without almost like magic, they they pop their beak out, they smack snap they they snap the back of the shrimp and suck all the juices out, and and this the 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 rest of the shrimp just kind of wanders off, and so it's that active wild caught seahorse that that would just know how to do that. And that's all he knew how to do. And then when they did captive rearing, they were able to get the same kind of shrimp and he would eat it and it didn't have to move. And so, uh, but the problem is, is that every fish in the tank wants to eat the food before it does. And also they don't tend to come from strong water circulation environments. And so right. there's two elements and many others to consider for which rule out maybe other animals that you want to put in with them because you don't want them to you know, overfeed and, and, and have a starved seahorse. They're just a very interesting animal, and you really want to think twice about getting one because you may not want to exclude some of the very fascinating things that you would get otherwise. Gotcha. And Frank, uh, what would you suggest if someone were to put something in with a seahorse? Do you have any recommendations? Yes, and that's a great point uh, that Rick made. They, any, almost every more typical fish will outcompete them, and they'll starve to death because uh, the foods they eat are, 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 are you know are highly desirable to most other fish. You, you're pretty much limited to. I mean, there's a few maybe bottom dwelling gobies that I've seen work, small ones. Um, snails, you know, marine snails, uh, if you keep some corals, um, 
very small, non-aggressive shrimp. The seahorses are protected, you know, by the hard covering uh, from a lot of uh, invertebrates. So, so some of the arrow crabs have worked, and peppermint shrimp, etc. But and they're not they're not active feeders in the water column. But fish that just rush up to the water surface and, and grab the food, the seahorses just won't work with them. Gotcha. Even even public aquariums, it's always a single species exhibit with a few invertebrates, uh, non-aggressive invertebrates, and maybe a couple of bottom-dwelling, slow-feeding fish. Gotcha. Well, we need to take another quick break, but when we come back from the break, we're going to shift the conversation and start getting into some of the uh, reptiles that we began talking about a little earlier. And we're having this conversation with Frank Indiviglio, as well as Rick Proust, this week on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. Now, back to two guys who had no idea that a pig that knows karate was called a pork chop. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320 WILS.com. It's 935 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we're talking this morning with Frank Indiviglio, who is a multifaceted uh, animal guy from New York. Frank, you work for the Bronx Zoo. have had a lot of uh, time spent with reptiles. Let's talk a little bit about that because you were mentioning earlier in the show that there were certain reptiles that are thought to be extinct that I would say to you, if you walked into Proust Pets, uh, they're frequently there, and I'm not saying they're common, but it just seems like there's a lot of interest in some of these animals. Talk a little bit about the changes that have transpired uh, dealing with reptiles. Yes, that, that's exactly true. And, and actually, a lot of them, several of them are very common now in captivity. And it's all due to captive breeding, uh, which suits them more for uh, captive life, much more than most wild-caught animals. And, um, you know, zoos, of course, did wonderful work with reptiles and amphibians breeding, helping endangered species, but that didn't get out to the public uh, where they could assist. And now it is really a point of assisting because um, zoos don't even exhibit some of these animals because they're so common. And that takes so much pressure off wild populations. People aren't collecting, for example, we, I mentioned earlier, crested geckos. That animal was believed extinct in the early 80s. And now it is in every pet store online, forget it. Reptile shows, there's sections, huge sections, color phases. The bearded dragon was not allowed out of Australia. I think the, the entire captive population started from some smuggled ones that got to Germany. But at any rate, no one would collect a bearded dragon today. Uh, millions, maybe billions being produced every year, and, and they're completely adapted to captivity. Corn snakes are basically on their way becoming uh, probably a domestic animal or subspecies maybe someday people are saying not that they were all that rare um filled lizards filled dragons there weren't many pictures of them when i was a kid uh they weren't in zoos here and now uh you could buy captive bred um filled lizards anywhere Anywhere, any good reptile uh, show will have private breeders supporting them. And they're in, uh, not sure about pet stores as much, but definitely the reptile shows. Uh, 
So that's that's well, been great I, because one, one young I, people can learn sorry, to Frank. care, and it definitely helps the uh, take pressure off of wild populations. The price drops so that people aren't compelled to go out and collect them. It's easy to breed them, uh, economically better. And um, it's really changed the hobby, and it's really all some very good private breeders that have been behind that. Rick, uh, what's your thought? Well, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I didn't mean to talk over you there, Frank, uh, but it was making me think about one other aspect that, that that's quite a bit different that you can comment on. Uh, we'll just bring up the bearded dragon and the ball python and, and go yes. to a show come into the store and look at what they look like now versus what they would have looked like before <laughs> and talk a little bit about the morph uh, breeding and the selective breeding and the, you know, the, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to find any of these in the wild. It's actually almost as if there's a, another whole animal department, if you will, that you couldn't have had uh, 20, 30 years ago. Yes, absolutely. And the ones you mentioned, bull python, beta dragon, leopard geckos, now even toke geckos and uh, some turtles as well. It, the, the changes that I think there's 27, you know, distinct lines of corn snake morphs, and some of the some of the um, the tricolored milk snakes. They look not, you, you couldn't I couldn't identify them by eye many times unless you looked at counted scales and did some other minor. Uh, um, you know, adjustments like that. Um, they've been captive bred for certain colors, for uh, size in some cases, like the bearded dragons. And it's it's great. Again, nobody's going to go out and collect the native ones anymore. Um, on the other hand, I have seen a little more influx of people who are more pure collectors for the 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 the, the, the look of the animal. Uh, and that might tend to bring in people who aren't as interested in some ways. But I think overall the benefit is still greater because you get more people interested and more people learning how to care for uh, them in captivity and to care for them in general. People who keep any kind of color morph of a wall python, I forget how many there are of those, uh, is not going to be someone who's also going to disregard other animals in general. You get a feeling for them. Now, Rick, when it comes to the reptile section, I know that in previous years, that's been one of your fastest growing sections that you've had in your store. Why do you think that so many people are just transfixed by these different reptiles? Well, certainly our culture is changing. Um, our lifestyles are changing. And our interest in curious animals that... Uh, uh, are not the common um, is has always been there, and I would say that with re with reptiles, you know, it's just something that people can kind of um, have an animal that can live as environment, uh, live within an environment within um, within the living room. Um, the care is very minimal, uh, generally speaking. Uh, I, I can't think of anything in the store that would be lower maintenance, for instance, than maybe a snake. Um, it's fed maybe anywhere from once a week to, you know, in some cases once a month or even longer than that, depending on the time of year. Um, so you, you have that going for you and you have small, you know, people living in apartments now, you know, where, where maybe a dog just isn't an option. Maybe some places won't even allow dogs uh, uh, 
Um, and, and so uh, reptiles, and I'll, I'll include their insects like, like tarantulas and such, all of those curiosity pets is why, you know, we're learning so much about the environment they come from and how to emulate that in captivity. And that's kind of part of the fun, this kind of creating an environment that they can kind of prosper and grow in. Uh, sometimes it's just the fun of watching them eat. When you watch some of these guys with their natural instincts and how they hunt their prey, so to speak, um, it's pretty darn amazing. And I think it's a super reminder of, of the complex world that we live in. And I think too often when we're surrounded with nothing but concrete and, and wallpaper, um, we need to be reminded that there is an, a natural world out there. And to some extent, I see, you know, this reptile keeping when done properly and responsibly is really a, great, a gateway opportunity to get people to think about how we need to save our planet, how we need to keep, you know, moving forward. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, how the we always have to be on the leading edge of, of, of uh, you know, how well, what's the right things to do. And I think that, you know, by experiencing these animals and learning that there is a right way to keep them, it makes us curious about, you know, the very wild that they come from. Now, Frank, you being in New York City would know nothing about being surrounded by concrete and what have you. So I'm, I'm sure that that didn't hit home at all for you, correct? It, it exactly hit the nail on the head, uh, what, what Rick said. It's, and I see it because um, I, I give an animal uh, after school classes in Manhattan for, for many, many years. And I'm actually right now helping a friend set up a Christmas surprise, a leopard gecko for her kid. They live in the financial district of Manhattan. Uh, you can't find, uh, I don't think you could find a more developed place. And, and just what Rick said about not being able to keep other animals. In Manhattan right now, this, this month, the average one-bedroom co-op to buy is $1.2 million. And that's anywhere, not like in a very desirable neighborhood. That's anywhere. That's average, and you pay, you know, you pay monthly maintenance fees of eight, nine thousand, a thousand dollars a month or more, uh, and you can't find one that would accept a dog generally. So uh, that's part of it. And in Manhattan, I see, especially the schools I did there, the parents were just thrilled with the ability to give their kids an, an animal experience. And most parents work; both parents are working. Uh, or one parent, it's the one parent family, that parent is working, uh, the ability to leave a snake for such a long time or other animals, that is even automatic feeders for turtles, uh, to leave them for such a long time uh, if they have to, or the, you know, the minimal care per day, I mean, ball pythons go on normal routine fasts for months at a time, keep to temperature and stuff in there. And they, have, they, still, they still have that circadian rhythm inside them. So uh, you, you have some, some snakes that are eating a few times a year. Uh, and with the smaller animals, uh, smaller lizards, um, and small amphibians, you can see a great deal of the life cycle which you can't see, you know, in a dog and a cat, you can see basically what they do around the house or, or a bird even. But you can, you know, a pair of dart frogs in a 10, 20-gallon aquarium, you'll see everything they do in the wild or much of it anyway. And also going back to what we said earlier uh, and what Rick brought up about the seahorses, the, better, the ability to take care of them now and have long lived animals. Bull pythons have lived 51 years. There's some uh, fire salamanders that have top 50. Uh, not that most people probably want that, but but the um, the typical 
her pets when when I was young, you know, the radiant slider, the animal, uh, the, 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 the green, uh, the green guana, they were pretty much uh, throwaway pets. You know, they lived for a while and died because we didn't have the knowledge to keep them going. And now that's just not the case. So the parents feel good about it. Uh, about keeping these animals. Well, it's it's a fascinating thing. And Frank, you've led me to what I want to talk about. Uh, We need to take a quick break first. But when we come back, I'd like to talk about dart frogs and amphibians. And just, I understand you have a special interest in some of those. So we'll talk about that right here on 1320 WILS. Welcome back to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320 WILS.com. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show, and we've been talking this morning with Frank Indiviglio, uh, who is from New York City and has done a lot of different uh, animal-related jobs. And Frank, one of the things that you mentioned when we were talking on the phone getting this uh, interview set up was that you have recently been spending time dealing with frogs and had a special interest in that. Why don't you share with our listeners exactly kind of what you've been doing with that? Thanks. Amphibians have always been a big interest. I think uh, they were easy to find when I was a kid in New York City. Uh, American toads, green frogs, bullfrogs. Uh, but also, uh, it's just whatever draws us to one particular group. Uh, it was always amphibians for me. When I got to the Bronx Zoo was, uh, working, um, it seemed that almost all the keepers were snake lizard oriented. So it fell to me to be the amphibian person, which was great. Give me a lot of opportunities. There, uh, in some ways, uh, many of them, most of them are more delicate, care intense than uh, most reptiles. Uh, But we now have the products and the the foods available to really keep an astonishing variety. Uh, And some live very long. I've had a northern red salamander, only about five inches long, that lived 37 years. Uh, I have fire salamanders in their mid-30s, and they go to 50. Uh, American toads and marine toads in their 40s. So uh, they, they can't, and, and a lot of them can be bred. We even have rain chambers available now in the, in the pet trade to stimulate frogs to breed, things like that. Um, I did write a book on um, newt and salamander care uh, for barons, and it was the first one really written since the 50s. Uh, of that size uh, because there's less interest in them than in some of the frogs. Uh, and the dark frogs we, that you mentioned while we were talking earlier are just, uh, you know, they just exploded the interest in that. And again, they were hard to keep years ago, and now yeah, they take care, but it's very easy to breed them. And Rick, I'm certain that your experience pretty much reinforces exactly what Frank just said. Isn't that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the the fun thing about frogs is really the the environment that you set up. It's sometimes it's like having an aquarium blended with sometimes having a terrarium, sometimes having both of those, and then you know trying to emulate environments that they just naturally want to breed on. And and honestly, it's not difficult at all. They they kind of just set up the right environment, and most frogs are are generally rather 
reproductive, and and then you have another element to kind of have is you know is that something you want to do? Do you want to you want to propagate this? Do you have a place to go with the youngs that you're going to propagate? You know, maybe you have to keep them separate so that doesn't happen, um, and which are all fun things to worry about. Well, and what's really neat about that whole thing is exactly what Frank said uh, earlier, which is that you get to see them from multiple stages of life. And that's really cool because tadpoles look nothing like frogs, but they sure as heck yeah. turn into them. So yeah, imagine a, yeah, imagine a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old that's able to sit there and watch a tadpole as it slowly develops into a frog. You know, yes. and maybe maybe twenty, thirty, fifty of them doing the same darn thing. It's 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 it is wondrous. Well, yes. it certainly makes me think that there's a lot of people out there that might be missing the boat because d- d- is it just that they don't hear about them or don't think about them? But you certainly see a lot more fish tanks than frog tanks. And that's changing, isn't it, Frank? Sorry, I didn't hear. You. I'm sorry. Oh, and no, he- I'm, uh, the the idea of. Um, um, Lee was just mentioning that you know he's he, when he thinks of hobbyists, he thinks of fish hobbyists. Oh, but yes. there's a good number of frog hobbyists out there. Uh, people that yes. are keeping them. That, that, you know, it's it's growing pretty fast. Yes, the, um, you know, people, especially with aquariums, you know, fish. The fish hobby was, of course, established long, long before amphibians. But um, and I think another thing. You, like we were saying, uh, you can see so much that they do, and the, the idea of raising them, I've done that with bullfrog tags for kids in schools because they're so large, you could see so much. It's just an amazing experience. But um, other than the African clawed frog, which is, of course, very common in the trade and takes pellets, you know, non-living food, uh, most frogs do need live prey or at least, you know, an insect moved about with the tongs if it's not alive. And I think that gets in the way a little. Um, they are as sensitive, most of them, or even more than fish to water quality because they're absorbing water over their whole bodies. So the entire body is open to whatever's going on in their environment. That can be difficult uh, if you don't pay proper attention to the, but the ability to filter now is there. There's low-level filters that can, you know, Rick will, Rick will uh, know this. There's, there's little filters that can function two inches of water. There's filters that create waterfalls. And so we can do it all. Uh, and certainly if you're getting into tr- most tropical fish, you, you really need to go through that learning process as well. It's not all that much different with most amphibians. Well, it's... Yeah, but, go but, ahead, Rick. Well, what I was going to mention... Uh, or ask Frank, uh, please mention maybe one, two, or three of your favorite frogs and describe them so people might be able to share the same enthusiasm you might have. Sure, that's a good idea because there's a lot of bad information out there on what to keep. Um, the African clawed frog's always been a favorite uh, because they're so hardy, live into their 30s, a uh, wide range of temperatures, and they will eat non-living food, um, there's, there's pellets made specifically for them. They're important lab animals, so we know a lot about their care. And they'll breed. I mean, they're easy to breed. That's a favorite. Um, any of the, the toads uh, from the natives, which mostly are protected, but some of the South, Af- uh, South American species are not, and also the marine toad, if you have the space, they're just so bold 
and so they're protected by the skin toxins. So bold, so uh, I mean, a wild one will pop into your hand to eat. And, and uh, I think, and they're so long alive that that's that's a wonderful pet. Um, the white tree frog, which is now bred, you know, easily in captivity, are very laid back. You know, sit on your finger. My my nephew feeds from his hand in front of like a class of 50 kids with an insect in one hand, the frog in the other, and they eat. Um, and they have a neat appearance. People just like them. Um, and the fire-bellied toad, which is an inexpensive little frog, but very hardy and very responsive. I mean, they follow you around the room, easy to breed. And the dart frogs for people with a bit of experience and who can, you know, culture the live food. It's all available commercially that they need, the springtails and pinhead crickets and fruit flies and such, because they're very bold, too. They're protected uh, by the skin toxins, although the captives don't have those toxins. Uh, but they're out in the day, which is great. A lot of amphibians are nocturnal. And a pair in a relatively small tank has its whole world there. You can see everything, you know, almost everything they do in the wild. Well, it's it's a fascinating conversation, as always. But unfortunately, we have the same problem we used to have, Frank. We're running out of time. Yes, but, but, that's always my problem with everything. <laughs> so, but before we I, let you go, I'd like to know exactly how do people find your articles, find your information? Where should they go online? Um, if they go online to thatreptileblog.com, um, it's... Or they can go to thatpetplace.com and just put in reptile blog. As I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, I can't answer questions on the blog anymore because the, the, there's a new company that bought the store that supports it. So uh, they would have to then find me on Facebook. Uh, but the information is all out there. I think I have 1,500 articles in total. Some are on birds and some are on, on invertebrates and mammals. But... Um, to find, uh, Facebook, just my name, uh, Frank, and spelling, spelling that long, torturous name, but uh, I'm on Facebook, I-N-D-I-V-I-G-L-I-O, and I do answer questions, um, you know, because it's a handleable number that I get, so I'd be happy to help folks out, anyone that needs uh, something, wants contact. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We've been speaking Thank this you. morning with Frank Indiviglio, and Rick, I hate to say it, but we're out of time. So on behalf of Scott Holiday, our producer, this is Lee Cohen, wishing all of you a great weekend and a great weekend. Talk next weekend on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. Meantime, please, please take good care of your pets. Have a great week, everybody.